The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made note unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now, before we get started this evening, we need to have a couple of announcements real quick. I just looked down here and I got post-it notes all over the podium. We still need nursery workers once a month. See Mark Friedrich. And on Sunday, August the 27th, we're going to have an after-service cake celebration to honor uh, a new baby in the church, Lucy. So make sure that you are uh, informed about that. Okay, we need to... Have a few moments of silent prayer. Those of you who made it to prayer meeting are already squared away, but the rest of us may need to have a few moments of silent prayer to get focused and get the distractions and out of our heads and focus on the Word, confess sin if necessary. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God whom we can trust with all things, that you have created a world in such a way that uh, we are able to learn about you. You've created us in such a way that we can understand your word. You have revealed yourself to us not only in your deeds but also in the words of Scripture. And as we study the Scripture, we come to understand you better, come to understand how you work in history we come to understand who we are and what our purpose is, and we come to understand how we can have a more intimate relationship with you. Now, Father, as we study tonight, as we continue this study in Joseph, we pray that the things that we study, the principles that we uncover will be driven home into our souls by God the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and our guide. Father, we pray that we might be responsive to what he is teaching us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Now, we started last time with the first part of this episode with Joseph and his brothers. And we focused just on that one aspect related to the dreams, and we went over the doctrine of dreams and visions and revelation. And tonight what I want to do is begin to look at how these events 
fit within the structure and scope of God's plan in history and divine revelation. Events in chapter 37 are among the most significant events of any single chapter in Scripture, I think, uh, other than chapters related to the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, I can think of one or two other key chapters, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, some of those chapters. But this is clearly one of the most significant and pivotal times in all of history because this chapter begins with Joseph in the land, with his brothers, with his father and his home, and enjoying the blessings of this land that God has promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. And at the end of the chapter, he's a slave in Egypt. So the chapter itself is almost in miniature a picture of what is happening to Israel, what is going to happen to Israel starting in the land and ending up as slaves in Egypt and as God is preparing them for the future. So we can say, in short, that the chapter provides a transition for the family of Abraham from the land of promise to the land of protection. Now, what do I mean when I suddenly refer to Egypt as a land of protection? That sounds like a funny way to talk about this. As they go into Egypt, they're going to go to a place of adversity, a place of hostility, a place where they are enslaved for several hundred years, a place where there are many abuses that are going to take place. Why is that a land of protection? That is the whole point of their being taken there. God recognizes that if he leaves them where they are in the land of Canaan, then they've already deteriorated spiritually so much and begun to be influenced so much by the uh, thinking of the cosmic system around them at that time, which was the Canaanite culture, the uh, fertility religions, and all of the other things. They had such, a, such an almost immeasurable interest in the things of God that God recognizes that in order to bring about his planned purposes for the descendants of Israel, he's got to take them out of the land, put them down into a, an incubator, as it were, in Egypt so that the nation can grow to a uh, to a size where he can then take it back to the land. So Egypt then becomes a place of protection to protect them from themselves. See, sometimes God has to do that with each one of us. So he has to protect us from our own negative volition and the trends of our own sin nature. And so we see a picture in this passage of how that happens. God, in his infinite knowledge, which we call omniscience, knows exactly what he is doing, and he's always working things out to bring about his desired goal. And so he ends up taking the chosen people down into a place where they're going to be enslaved for several hundred years. Now, that doesn't really sound like such a, such a good thing to be chosen people if you're going to end up going in slavery. Somebody sent me a tongue-in-cheek email the other day. This is a memo from the Jews, a.k.a. the chosen people, to the Lord God Almighty, a.k.a. Hashem Shaddai Elohim, etc. Subject, termination of contract as special status of chosen people. As you are aware, the contract made between you and Abraham is up for renewal. 
And this memorandum is to advise you that after, yea, those many millennia of consideration, we the Jews, a.k.a. the chosen people, have decided that we really don't, want to wish, don't wish to renew. We should point out immediately that, contrary to popular beliefs, we have not really benefited too much from this arrangement. If you go back to the early years of our arrangement, it definitely started off on the wrong foot. Not only was Israel and Judea invaded almost every year, but we also went to enormous expense to erect not only one, but two temples, and they were both destroyed. All we have left is a pile of old stones called the Western Wall. Of course, you know all this, but it's a good thing to account for all the reasons we wish to terminate the contract. After the Hittites, Assyrians, Goliaths, not only were we beaten up almost daily, but then we were sold off as slaves to Egypt, of all countries, and really lost a few hundred years of development. Now we realize that you went to a great deal of trouble to send Moses to lead us out of Egypt, and those poor Egyptian buggers were, uh, were smitten with all those plagues. But reflecting on those years, we are at loss to understand why it took almost 40 years to make a trip that Al Al now does in 75 minutes. Also, while not apparent, wanting to appear to be ungrateful, for years a lot of people have asked why Moses led us left instead of right at Sinai. If we'd gone right, we would have had the oil. Okay, so the oil was not part of the deal. But then the Romans came, and we really were up to our necks in dreck. While it's true that the Romans did give us water fit to drink, aqueducts and baths, it was very disconcerting to walk down one of the vias and look up and see one of your friends or family nailed to a three-by-four looking for all the world like a signpost. Even one of our princes, Judah Ben-Hur, got caught up with the Roman stuff and drove like a crazy man around the Colosseum. It's a funny thing, but many people swore that Ben-Hur had an uncanny resemblance to Moses. Go figure. Then of all things, one of our rabbis declared himself your son. Now, there was nothing said about this with Abe. And before we knew what was what, a whole new religion sprang up. To add insult to injury, we were dispersed all over the world two or three times while this new religion really caught on. We were truly sorry to hear that the Romans executed him like so many others, but alas, once again, we were blamed. Now, here's something we really don't understand. That our rabbi really came into his own, millions of people revered and worshipped his name in scriptures, and still killed us by the millions. Anyway, it goes on and on in that vein for another page or so, and then it concludes, After all these years you arrange for us to go back, then all the Arab countries immediately declare war on us. We have to tell you that sometimes your sense of humor really eludes us. Okay, so we win all the wars, but it's now 2006 and nothing's changed. We keep getting blown up, hijacked, and kidnapped. We have no peace whatsoever. Enough is enough. So we hope that you understand that nothing's forever, except you, of course. And we respectfully would like to pull out of our agreement vis-a-vis -vis being your chosen people. Look, sometimes things work out, sometimes they don't. Let's be friends over the next few eons and see what happens. How about this? We're sure you recall that Abraham had a whole other family from Ishmael, the ones who got the oil. How about making them your chosen people for a few thousand years? Respectfully, the committee to be unchosen. Well, that's a little humor, but we recognize exactly what's going on in the history of Israel. But sometimes when you're in the midst 
of the discipline from God and what God is doing, you don't really understand what the big picture is. Now, as believers in the church age with uh, the New Testament, we have a pretty good understanding of what's going on, and we have that uh, divine viewpoint, that divine bird's-eye view of what's going on in history. And that's the only way that you can properly interpret or come to understand what the trends are in history. And when you are in the midst of some of those trends that you feel like uh, are rolling over you, then you have to be able to slip back in your mind and have that divine viewpoint framework because we all end up getting involved in various uh, situations of hostility, reaction, anger from people. We go through uh, unjustified suffering, undeserved suffering, and we have to stop and reflect upon just what is going on here. And that is the foundation for Genesis chapter 37. When we think about it, all of history is pretty complex. You have initially maybe hundreds of people, then thousands of people, then hundreds of thousands of people, and then billions of people, millions and billions of people, all running around this planet, everyone with their own volition, everyone wanting to be God. Now, on top of having all these people running around the planet who want to do their own thing in rebellion against God and wanting to make themselves God, God has a plan and a purpose that he's going to take all these threads. Let's just think of it as, as millions of threads. God is going to take all these threads, and he's going to take different groups of those threads, and he's going to weave them together into ropes, and he's going to use those different ropes to bring about different uh, goals and objectives by the individual threads, I mean individual people. By ropes, we have different nations, different people groups. We have Israel, we have Gentiles, we have church age believers in the church age. And God is working out a plan, but what he has to work with is, think about it, billions of people who don't want to submit at all to whatever it is God is doing. They're all just blowing in the wind, as it were. So we have to think about what is going on in terms of God's, uh, God's perspective. Joseph's life, your life, my life, are just one of those threads. But when we're t- studying Joseph, we recognize that his life is one of the more important threads because God's taking that thread and he is producing through that thread a new rope in history. He's going to take the thread of the line of Abraham and through that line he's going to build a nation that he's establishing in the world that has a vital role because he is going to reveal himself to all mankind through this nation. They're going to be the custodians of divine revelation. They are the ones and they are the only ones responsible for receiving, recording, and preserving divine revelation. Furthermore, it is through this group of people that God is going to bring about redemption for everybody on the planet, for all of mankind. Now, how does he do this? Because what I'm driving here is that as we look at, as we sort of shrink down into the microcosm of Joseph and what is about to happen 
with Joseph as an individual, just as it often does with each of us where we go through undeserved suffering, we go through some sort of crisis or adversity, we have to trust God. And what I'm getting at here is what are the dynamics of this trust for God that is ultimately being exemplified in Joseph, and Joseph is also learning while he's going through this, because God's taking this 17-year-old and he's going to prepare him to be one of the greatest leaders in all of history. But leaders aren't just born. Leaders are trained. Leaders are developed. Leaders are prepared. And so we see this process here of how God is going to develop Joseph as a leader. And first and foremost, he's got to develop him in his character and mature him in in his relationship, that is, in Joseph's relationship with God. That's the same thing that God does with each of us. God has to uh, mature us. He has to prepare us to make us uh, usable uh, in his plan. And so, as we look at this well-known episode of Joseph being rejected by his brothers, their conspiracy against him to take him and make it appear as if he has been killed by wild animals, and then they sell him to into slavery. There are four basic doctrinal themes that uh, come to the surface here, and I want to introduce those tonight before we get into some of the detailed exegesis, and then as we go through the detailed exegesis of the passage, we're going to then pull these doctrinal threads out. What I'm hoping to show you is a couple of things, one of which is how to look at Scripture from within a, a biblical framework so that you move from, from understanding these episodes but going to these episodes to to be a source of comfort and strength for you when you're going through adversity and difficulties, we need to learn to think in terms of, of basic categories of doctrine. And when we think in terms of suffering or undeserved suffering, we should have certain things that are stories or episodes in the Old Testament that come to mind. And then when, we, when we're going through this, we stop and we reflect upon those uh, situations of undeserved suffering. And I would think of right off the top of my head, I think of three key episodes in the Old Testament that help us think through undeserved suffering. The first is the one that everybody thinks of, and that's going to be uh, the book of Ruth, right? No, the book of Job. Everybody thinks of Job right off the bat. And Job basically teaches us that whatever we're going through in life fits within the pattern of an overall angelic conflict. And we have no idea how what we go through relates to that broad angelic conflict. Job starts off with with Satan challenging God, and God says, Have you looked at my servant Job? Now, the interesting thing about Job 1 and Job 2 is that Satan isn't the one that focuses on Job. Satan is the one that comes up and says, You know, Job really just worships you because you give him everything. God's the one who brought Job up. You might think about that a little while and say, Well, with friends like that who needs enemies... God is the one who says, have you looked at Job? And so he is, he is the one who is behind this, and we fit that into the category of testing 
that God is going to allow Job to be tested in such a way in order to demonstrate certain truths, not only as they re- because they're going to relate to his own spiritual growth, but they're going to be used by thousands and millions of Christians to learn about undeserved suffering down through the ages. So we think of how uh, of, of Job in terms of the fact that we may never know the answers to the whys and the wherefores of our suffering. Job never did. God never answers the questions that Job asked. We're privy to what was going on in chapter 1 and chapter 2, but Job wasn't when he went through it. And so he has to learn to trust God that, that as, as he says about halfway through the book, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. No matter what we go through, we're still going to trust God. Joseph has to learn this principle when he's in the pit, in the cistern actually, waiting for these Midianite traders to make a deal with his brothers and he's going to be sold into slavery and then he's taken away never to see his family again, he thinks, to be a slave in Egypt. And he has to think in terms of I'm going to trust God even though my life seems to have turned into just one chaotic mess and I'll never get whatever it is I thought I was going to get. So we think of Job. Another book that we think of is, is Ruth, actually. Ruth is a book that is about turning cursing into blessing, turning suffering and adversity into blessing, because Ruth starts off. Ruth is not about Ruth. Now, most people don't know that. You hear most sermons present Ruth as, as the romance of redemption. I think that's what uh, J. Vernon McGee uh, called it. J. Vernon McGee is very famous for his uh, radio show, Through the Bible, and many people have appreciated uh, Dr. McGee over the years. I always uh, like a couple of anecdotes related to uh, Dr. McGee's life, one of which is that he, he spent his first year in seminary at a Presbyterian seminary in Virginia. It was Union Theological Seminary. It was a liberal seminary, and it really wasn't what he wanted. And he was from a little town called Waxahachie, Texas. Now, some of you all know where Waxahachie is. And he was just an old country boy, and this was like 1932, and this was in the midst of the Depression, and Dallas Seminary wasn't 10 years old. It was just a small school, and he had heard about it, though, that that was a good place to go to school, but he wanted to make sure they were grace-oriented. So when he walked up to Stearns Hall, which probably wasn't called Stearns Hall then because Daniel Stearns was still alive, but when he walked up to the main building and walked in to check out this new seminary just to make sure they were truly grace-oriented, he lit up the biggest cigar he could get and walked into the office. Now, Dr. McGee, of course, is, is well known. And one other great story that I love to tell is that, that one time he was invited to speak in chapel at Dallas. And this was in the early 70s, and he was sitting up on the platform when he first was informed that of the scheduler. It was on the way to to the uh, to the chapel service. Typically, chapel was 30 minutes long. We'd have a couple of announcements and sing a hymn, and then there'd be a 20 or 25-minute message, and, and that was chapel. Well, Dr. McGee was just informed as he approached chapel that he only had 20 minutes. He had prepared something somewhat longer, and so he was somewhat miffed about that, and he seems to me that he was probably a pretty good old curmudgeon as he got into his later years. And so he was sitting up on the pulpit when he was asked to come up and speak, and it was his time. He got, was introduced. He got up there, and he said, Well, men, and I wish I could imitate his voice. He had this, one of the most unusual accents I've ever heard. He said, Men, I've just been informed that 
I only have 20 minutes to speak. You can't say anything significant about the Bible in 20 minutes, so let's close in prayer. (laughs) And I always loved that because he was right. You can't really say anything significant about the Bible in 20 minutes. So, anyway, his well-known thing was Ruth was the romance of redemption. But he, it's, it, it does deal with the whole issue of redemption because Boaz is the Goel, the Redeemer, who exercises his uh, leveret rights as the extended member of the family to marry the widow Ruth. But the book is all about Naomi. It starts off with, Na- with a focus on Naomi, and Naomi loses her husband, and she loses her two sons. And she says, Woe is me, my name should no longer be Naomi, call me Mara, because I'm bitter. And so the first chapter is all about the bitterness of Naomi. And then she returns to the land. Uh, she, they've been out of the land in Moab. They return to the land. Her Gentile daughter-in-law, stick, Ruth, sticks with her. And there she informs Ruth that there is a man out uh, who has a, who, a wealthy man who owns these various fields where they're uh, harvesting the grain and that he's an extended relative and has this right to, to uh, take her as his wife and to raise up children in the name of her dead husband because he's a, he's a relative. And so Ruth then goes out to meet Boaz and, and uh, they eventually get married and have children and she's the great-grandmother of David. And when you come to the end of the book, it says, and uh, it says, and Naomi uh, gave birth to so and so, and it once again returns to Naomi, and the, it's the blessing for Naomi because these children are raised up to her family's name, and so the, the it goes from the cursing of Naomi at the beginning of the book to the end. So that's another story we go to when we go through suffering. We don't know what's going on is we go to uh, a book like like Ruth and we think it through in terms of how God is working in the circumstances. And another episode is what happens to Joseph from the beginning to end. And I pointed some of this out as we, as we started, but we'll get to, back to Romans 8.28 in just a minute. I said there, there are four doctrinal principles that are emphasized and form the backdrop for... Uh, chapter 37, and we need to think those through. And the first relates to the question of undeserved suffering, which I just mentioned. Why do the good suffer? Why is there undeserved suffering in the world? The psalmist says, why is it that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? If any of you have ever lost a job that... Uh, for reasons that were beyond your control, but you thought it was unjust or undeserved, or you've been the victim of slander or gossip that has ruined your reputation, or you have uh, uh, gone through uh, health crises or other situations that you felt just were, were not at all deserving, then you have asked this question, why has this happened to me? If we dwell on that question too much, It's real easy to slip into a lot of self-pity and begin to wallow around and uh, how bad things are, woe is me, things are terrible, rather than striking out and applying doctrine and uh, moving out in a positive direction. This is obviously a situation that occurred, would have occurred to Joseph. Why is this happening to him? He's doing everything right. This is a, 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 a young man that Nothing negative is presented about him in the 
uh, opening of this chapter. But he might think that things are out of control and that God has lost control. In fact, when this question is often asked, and there was a Jewish rabbi who wrote a book to address this question a few years ago called uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, Rabbi Harold Kushner, and just so happened today that I got an email and on one of my many notifications from bookstores that he's got a new book out. And uh, But Rabbi Kushner, we would... would uh, uh, he sort of missed the whole thing because he his conclusion was that bad things happen to good people because God just can't control anything and everything's out of control. So there's no real hope or real encouragement. Now he's got a new book out that uh, tries to encourage people from the life of Moses, but after what he said in the first book, I don't know how he can be very encouraging. So we ask this question, why do the righteous suffer? Why is it that, that Joseph goes through this suffering, this hardship, this rejection. He's got to go through the rejection, the anger, the hostility, the resentment of his brothers, the abuse. They probably taunted him when they captured him, tied him up, and threw him in a cistern. Uh, they hated they hated him, but he had done nothing wrong. He had been a man of, uh, of honor and virtue, fulfilling the wishes and desires of his father. And he may have been a little too boastful in his naivete when he, God gave him the dreams related to his, his future prominence uh, over the brothers, but that isn't presented as a fault. It's more out of his youthful, naive enthusiasm that he did this. And all uh, we see is the reaction and hostility uh, of the brothers. So we have to address this whole issue of undeserved suffering and what is going on with undeserved suffering. And part of that leads to the second doctrinal theme that works itself out in, uh, and displays itself in this chapter, and that is the uh, outworking of divine discipline. Outworking of divine discipline, and in this case, it's related to the failures of this family. A key element to remember in this episode in chapter 37 is that of the of deception the brothers are angry so they get together and they uh, plot against Joseph and they're going to deceive their father with respect to what happens to Joseph now if you think very long about deception who is the uh, chief deceiver that you think of uh, human wise in the book of Genesis it's Jacob so Jacob's Jacob's uh, just going to get a taste of his own medicine. And if we think about the situation, we realize that Jacob deceived his father in order to gain the inheritance and the blessing. And that this whole idea of the inheritance and the blessing is a key element in why the brothers are so angry with Joseph and want to do away with Joseph in order to get, uh, because it appears that Joseph is the one who's going to get the double portion and the inheritance. The principle that we're going to see worked out here is found in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that is what we do in life, brings about certain consequences. Some of these consequences are the natural consequences from bad acts. Others are unintended consequences. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. 
But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So this is a general principle that's presented in the Scriptures, that what a man sows, he also reaps. And we see that with Jacob. Jacob deceived his father to get the inheritance. Jacob created a situation in his family by the way he handled his love for Joseph. Now, I pointed out last time, it's not necessarily wrong for a parent to favor one child over another. That can be for many reasons. When we think of Joseph, I mean, Jacob and his uh, love for Joseph, we recognize, first of all, that Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel, the woman he loved above all the others. He was tricked into marrying Leah, but Rachel was his, was his true love. But he's got these other sons that he has to deal with, and these sons are not presented as, as just the, 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 the best of the human race. They have committed murder, Genesis thirty-four, twenty-five, as two of the brothers, uh, Levi and Simeon, did, committed mass murder against all the men in Shechem. Uh, incest, Reuben committed incest with one of Jacob's concubines, hatred toward Joseph, that hatred, and then they hated him more and hated him more, and it turned into envy. They sold Joseph into slavery. They lied. In the next chapter, we're going to see the immorality of, of Judah. You know, These brothers are not very lovable. They're not very likable. And Jacob probably looks at the bunch, and here is this one son who is the son of his favorite wife, and he is obedient he has a, a, a character that is that is wholesome, and he has integrity, and he has a love for the Lord, and he's growing spiritually. And that was the one who, to whom Israel, because he's mentioned as Israel twice in this passage, in verse 3 and again in verse 13, emphasizing the, the positive spiritual side of Jacob's character, and he is attracted to to Joseph. And as a result of that, when we go back to verses 2 through 4, we see how he has displayed that favoritism. So it wasn't, it's not necessarily wrong to pick a favorite. I mean, you might have eight or ten children. Now, most of you don't, but, you know, two or three generations back, folks had eight or ten children. Some, now they just have two or three. But there might be one that you have more of a, a rapport with, that you have more in common with, that you just enjoy being with. It's not that you don't like the others. It's just that there's one that's, that, that is kind of a favorite, but you don't necessarily show the kind of favorite, show that special love in a way to create division in the family. And that's just exactly what Jacob did. But where did Jacob learn it? Remember, let's go all the way back to Genesis 25. In Genesis 25, you have Isaac and Rebekah, and they have twins. And Jacob is Rebekah's favorite. And Esau is Isaac's favorite. And they play off of that. And what happened as a result of the favoritism that those parents showed? It created a division and a competition and a conflict between Esau and Jacob so that even though you had you started off, and it's interesting to note the parallel. You start off the, the Jacob and Esau's story with a divine prophecy. God reveals that there, these two represent two nations struggling within the womb, but he says the uh, older will serve the younger. So there is a clear 
prophecy of God that Jacob is the one who should get the inheritance and the birthright. But Isaac doesn't seem to go along with it. Rebecca doesn't. And then they get all caught up in trying to manipulate the situation to bring about God's plan and to make it happen in their life so that Jacob's the one who gets the blessing. And that just created all of this undue competition and division to, to, within the family that that just sort of snowballed down through the subsequent decades. And now you're, we're seeing the same thing repeat itself again in the family of Jacob. He's showing favoritism. He does it in an inappropriate manner. And all that does is create a wedge between his sons rather than fostering uh, family unity. And what he does is he uh, creates this, gets this, has his coat made that is given to Joseph, and it's traditionally translated uh, a coat of many colors in verse Verse 3, it's translated, made him a, uh, New King James says, a tunic of many colors. King James had a coat of many colors. Literally in the Hebrew, it means it's a tunic that went to the, went to the ankles and, and had long sleeves. And usually it was decorated or embroidered in such a way as to have significance. And the significance is that Jacob has singled out Joseph for this particular badge of office. That's what it was. And it was an indication that Joseph was his favorite. And Joseph was the one to whom he would give the double portion, the inheritance, the blessing would go to Joseph as the firstborn of the woman who should have been his first wife. And so he, he, Reuben is going to be disinherited. The other brothers would miss out on their inheritance. So this is why they are just boiling mad is because Joseph is going to get everything and they're basically getting cut out of the will. And so their hatred for him just mounts. And then that's followed up by these two dreams that he has, which seems like God is confirming that Joseph is the one who's going to get the blessing, who will be the leader in the family, and they won't. And so they're, they, they've rejected God. They're in a position of carnality. And one of the things you always notice is when people are in carnality, that they resist and fight God's will. They try to subvert God's plan. And what's interesting is the way God works all these things out. And, and it's ironic that the more people try to resist and reverse God's plan, the more they do what will bring it about. And so in the very attempt to subvert this prophecy by selling Joseph off or killing him, uh, they lay the groundwork so that it comes to pass. So we see this contrast between Joseph and his brothers and that God works out divine discipline in relationship to the failures in the family. So a lot of the dynamic that's going on here is is, is the sins of Jacob, the deceiver, coming back to haunt him. And all of this plays itself out in the family. Also has some interesting things to say about perhaps his parental skills. Third, the third doctrinal theme that we see here is how God works out the details, not only to bring discipline into the family for their lies, murders, and deceptions, but how he uses that to bring about how he uses that to bring about his desired glory. 
Now, as we look at this, I want you to think, I want us to think a little bit about what uh, Joseph is going through. He's being sold by his brothers into slavery. They have done nothing right, and he's done everything right, and he's the one who's, who's being surrounded by evil people. In fact, the word evil in the Hebrew, the word ra, comes into play a couple of times, and when we get into the exegesis, we'll show that it's a play on words in the passage, but that's, that's one of the sub-themes is the contrast between evil and good. Now, as we observe what's going on in the episode, we know that God is working behind the scenes, even though God isn't mentioned. That's the same thing that often happens in our lives. We go through things and we wonder, what is God doing? Where is God when all this is happening? And yet, what we must understand from the Scriptures is that God is at work behind the scenes, whether we recognize and understand it or not. In the midst of all these threads that are happening in history... We know that above everything, in a different way than what we think of, because we're creatures and so we have a limited understanding of control, that God, in in his creaturely way, consistent with his uh, character, is in control of the details of life. So he's working out all these different threads, all these individuals, everything's happening in history, billions of different threads, And at the same time, not only is he trying to bring about his purposes in history with all these different people with their own volition, trying to do their own thing in rebellion against him, but at the same time he's being attacked from the flanks by Satan who's constantly ranting and raving about uh, what God is doing and trying to prove that God can't control anything and how how he can't justify any of these people because they're uh, rebellious sinners. So God is working through all of this, and it looks to us, from our perspective, as if the threads are just out of control. The way to get through this, when we go through these kinds of things, this is the kind of thing that Joseph should have been doing. We don't know that this is what he was doing, but I'm sure that he had some level of grace orientation, doctrinal orientation already, and so he is like us. He's wrestling with what God is doing and learning to trust God in the midst of adversity. So what we think through is the character of God. First of all, we know that God is sovereign. That means he's the ultimate authority in the universe and the ultimate cause in the universe, and therefore nothing that happens happens aside from his permission. No matter how out of control things look in our life, they are never out of God's control. No matter how out of control it gets, no matter how chaotic it may get, no matter how extreme the adversity, no matter how opposite things go than the way we thought they would go, God hasn't lost control. He's the ultimate cause of the universe, and therefore we have to learn to relax and trust in Him. That's His sovereignty. He rules. Now, He does it in such a way that He doesn't violate human responsibility. He doesn't violate human volition, but His causation and control is at a different is in a different way than ours is because we can only think of causation and control in terms of creaturely causation and control, but God's control is in such a way that it doesn't violate or step on the the the, um, the creature. Second thing we have to think about is that God is omniscient; He knows all the knowable. 
Now, when we think about the omniscience of God, we have to think about, the, first of all, that God knows everything. He knows all the real and all the hypothetical, everything that could happen and would happen. Now, that is almost an infinite amount of data if you work out all the permutations of every decision that that people could make. You could wake up in the morning and do one of five different things, and God knows what would happen in each case of each of those five decisions, and each of those five decisions would then lead to five more decisions, and each of those could lead to five more decisions, and you get the idea. It could just rapidly increase to a to an almost uncontrollable number of options, and yet God knows exactly what's going to happen. We have statements from Jesus, some of the more difficult statements that we find in the New Testament. He talks about what's going on in Chorazin and Bethsaida as they've rejected the gospel witness, and he says, if what was done in you was done in Tyre and Sodom, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago, indicating that he knows exactly what would have and could have happened in those locations if more revelation had been given to them, but more revelation wasn't given to them, so it didn't happen. He knows the potentials, the hypotheticals. He knows the contingencies, every one of them. And he knows this intuitively. What do I mean by he knows it intuitively? I mean that you and I learn things one thing at a time, one element at a time, or maybe several elements at a time, but we learn progressively and incrementally. But God, God knows everything at the same instant. He intuitively has always perceived all contingencies, all possibilities at once. Now, that just blows our mind. We can't, we can't come close to understanding how that would be. But because God immediately and directly perceives all possibilities and all contingencies from the outset, we know that He that that nothing that happens in our lives, nothing that happens in history surprises Him, takes Him off guard. It may surprise and take us off guard, but never never Him. So He has all this data, just like a massive computer. He's constantly dealing with all this data but he's always known everything from the very beginning and he's multitasking now he's not multitasking like you do you know you're trying to drive to work in the morning wake up listen to the radio talk to the kids drink a cup of coffee and avoid the other people who are half awake on the freeway and you can do maybe four or five things and on a good day seven or eight things at the same time as you get older that number decreases but then you know that already I'm learning that now, but God does a billion times ten to the billionth power of things, and even more, all at the same time. He never drops a single ball, never misses out on anything, never forgets you because he's suddenly distracted by a bomb that went off in Iraq. Nothing gets away from him. He is in complete control of every single detail. He never gets his eye off the, the objective. He never forgets one person, one conflict. He is the one who's numbered every single hair on your head. And he's not going to forget you. Not once. Now, as I got to thinking about that this afternoon, I said, you know, there's a psalm that just directly speaks to this. And that's Psalm uh, 56. So I want you to turn with me over to Psalm 56. Now, Psalm 56 wasn't written by Joseph, but it was written by David. But if we look at what David writes as he meditates on his circumstances in Psalm 56, 
we know that this is the same kind of thought process that Joseph should have been going through and probably did go through something like this. And it's the same thought process that you and I need to go through when all of a sudden chaos erupts around us. There's a uh, notation at the beginning that tells us the historical context of Psalm 56. And the historical context is that this occurred in First uh, Samuel chapter 21 when David fled from Saul, who's breathing fire and threatening his life, and David is surrounded by people he, whom he doesn't know. He doesn't know who he can trust when he's back in the, in the palace in Jerusalem. He, he's got their spies everywhere. Saul's out to kill him. He doesn't know who, who he can trust. Everybody's out, out to get him, so he, he flees. But where does he go? He flees to the Philistines in Gath. I mean, this is, um, he go, goes to Achish in Gath. This is Goliath's hometown. So he jumps from the frying pan into the fire to avoid being killed by Saul. And he's just, everywhere he turns, he is surrounded by people who truly, profoundly want to kill him. So life is rather chaotic, and he cries out to God. This psalm is called a lament psalm. And a lament psalm is simply a technical term for the fact that he is expressing the problems and the adversity in his life. He's going to God. He's lamenting his situation. What's interesting in the lament psalms is it always starts off with the psalmist focusing on going to God, number one, cry out to God, and number two, it's a focus on the problem. But then as he shifts from focusing on the problem and take his, takes his eyes off the circumstances and begins to put them on God, you, just, you, you, you can hear his mental attitude shift until it locks onto the character of God by the end of the psalm. And these psalms end with a descriptive praise to God and a vow to obedience to God. And so you see him move from, from just a fragmented uh, mental attitude of being overwhelmed by all of his enemies and whatever the adversity is to moving to a position of of stability and comfort and relaxation because he's been stabilized by the character of God. So he cries out in verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He just, he knows everybody's against me. Now when everybody's against you, what do you feel like? You know, when you get when we cave into self pity and we want to cry and we want to whine, you know, we just think that somehow God has lost control. He's not really paying attention. Now, remember how I got into this. I said, God is the one who knows all the knowable. He knows every detail. Nothing takes him by surprise. Not only does, but he doesn't just know it academically. He is concerned about that in our lives. This is a God who numbers the very heads of our hair. Uh, he knows all the hairs on our head, and he knows every detail. Nothing's going to get away from him. He cares about us. And we're going to see the detail of that caring right here in this psalm, one of my favorite psalms. He cries out to God, and then he begins to express what the problem is. Man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day long, for there are many who fight against me almost. I'm surrounded. I don't have anybody on my side. Then he shifts gears. Notice, watch the shift. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Three times in this uh, 
psalm, he uses this word trust. The Hebrew word is batach, which means to express confidence, security, and stability on something, to just rest and relax totally on something. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. It's, it's stronger than that in the Hebrew. It's whenever fear comes to me, I trust you. It's a very strong statement that when and, and what we learn here is it's not wrong to become afraid or fearful at times. You know, something happens and that anxiety hits us and grabs us. That's not wrong. That's being human. What's wrong is what you do with it. What's wrong is what you let that it's either going to drive you to panic and self absorption or it's going to drive you to trusting in God. So that's that's the test. Whenever I'm afraid, he says, I, I trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. The focus is on what God has said. It's a process of the faith rest drill where you're taking the promise of God and you're relaxing and resting in it. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. Twice he repeats this in this psalm. I will not fear what can man do to me. I used to know a guy in the, when I was in college. And he'd get in a, you know, a difficult situation. He'd say, what are they going to do, take away my birthday? <laughs> well, that's the idea here. What can man do to me? There is not, if God is on my side, what can anybody do to me? Even if they take my life, God's in control, so I'm just going to be face-to-face with the Lord. Then in verse 5, he shifts back, and he's focusing on the problem again. All day they twist my words. You think you think if Joseph could say this same thing? He's surrounded by his brothers who hate him. They're jealous of him. They are they're they're just going to twist his words if he says, "Look at this dream I had. Isn't this wonderful?" They begin to taunt him with the dream. All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps, they, they watch me. They're always looking for some slip-up where they can take advantage of it. He goes on to say, shall they escape by iniquity? In other words, shall these unrighteous make it? I mean, these are these unrighteous, carnal, uh, hate-filled enemies. Of, you know, they're friends of Saul. They're, they're enemies of righteousness. Are they going to escape judgment by iniquity? Are they going to get away with this? That's what he's asking. This is what consumes us when we are the product of undeserved suffering. Is is God going to make this right? Is there real justice? Are they going to get what they deserve and can I watch? See, that's the problem is we want to watch. Shall they escape by iniquity? And then he calls upon God. This is his request in verse 7. In anger... Cast in or in wrath, I would I would translate this in wrath. And wrath being a term of the judgment of God, the expression of the judge, justice of God. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. And then in verse eight, he shifts back and he focuses on God again. And this is what is so comforting in times of of when things seem so chaotic and everything's against us. You number my wanderings. That's a principle. God has the. Hairs of our head numbered. He knows every detail. He, he's not, he's not uh, distracted, sidetracked by bigger events going on with more important people somewhere else in history. 
David says, you number my wanderings. You're keeping track of every step, every move, every time I falter, every time I trip. You're taking account of that. And then he says, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Now, let me tell you what that means. This is a profound illustration here. In the ancient world, they had something that they called tear bottles. I almost bought a Roman tear bottle when I was in Jerusalem, but it was they wanted $600 for it, and that was a little more than I wanted to pay. And what they would do is at times of significant loss or grief, when a child died and you were grieving, or when a, uh, a spouse died and you were grieving, and it was a profound sorrow, then what you would do is you would take this little tear bottle and you would capture your tears in that bottle and save them as a memorial to remember that time of grief. Now what David is saying here is this is what God does, is that he's not callous toward the suffering, the heartaches, the pain that we're going through. He's fully aware. You think of Jesus looking on the crowd that's mourning over the death of Lazarus, and what did he do? He wept. It shows that God. It shows the compassion and the care that God has for us in the adversity we go through, even though He knows that He's taking us through that adversity to bring maturity and to teach us to trust Him. So David says, "You number my wanderings. You put." He says, "Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book?" See, in the process in the ancient world, they would collect the bottle and then they would write out a record, like in a diary, of that period of grief and sorrow. So he is reflecting on the fact that God records and remembers and takes into account every sorrow, every heartache, every difficulty that we go through in life. Then David says, when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In other words, if God's for me, who can be against me? And God, and then he repeats in verse 10 what he said earlier in verse 4. This is his declarative praise. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What problem, difficulty, what circumstances that you face in life did God not know about a billion years ago? that God's omnipotence isn't more powerful than, that is outside of the plan and purpose of God. What, what situation, just tell me, what heartache, what problem, what adversity, whether you get smacked and ha- lose everything with something a natural disaster like Hurricane C- Katrina, or you go through a, an economic disaster like the Great Depression, or you go through a military disaster, like uh, if you're a believer living in the southern part of Lebanon and you get your uh, house and everything else blown away, what crisis is there in life that you go through that God wasn't fully aware of in eternity past, isn't more powerful than, and did not make provision for in eternity past? So when we face the kinds of situation that Joseph is facing, we think through the kinds of thing David thought through in Psalm 56. This is the same process. Then verse 12 and 13 of that psalm, he, he makes his vow to God to praise him when, the next time he goes to the temple because God will have, will have, see it hadn't happened yet, God will have delivered him from this crisis.
So we think about God as sovereign, he's omniscient, he knows every detail, takes care of every detail. And then we come to the third attribute, God's omnipotent. Now, God's omnipotent not only means that God is more powerful than any problem we're going to face, but that God is able to bring to pass that which he intends to bring to pass. I think a lot of times the omnipotence of God is misdefined as God can do anything. But see, then you always have somebody come along and say, well, can God make a circle a square? And these silly things like that. And that's not the point. In omnipotence, God is able to accomplish whatever it is that he wants to accomplish. That means that no matter what happens in human history with all these threads of independent volitions that are running around trying to be little gods, God is so great and so powerful that despite what anything a human being can do, God is going to bring about his plans and his purposes so that his omnipotence becomes one of the most important attributes of all when we're thinking through how to handle the challenges and disappointments of life. This would be exactly what De- what, what uh, Joseph would be thinking of when he's down in that cistern. Is God powerful enough to deliver me from this? And it may not be the way he thought, like God's just going to pop him out. That's what we want is instant deliverance. But the deliverance occurred, didn't it? It took 12 years. 13 years, and he's the number two guy. And well, 10 years, he's a slave of Potiphar. Then he's in jail for about three years. So it took about 13 or 14 years, and then he's the number two guy in Egypt. So it took a while. Now, we want God to hurry up and do it now. But we, but God is more concerned with the process because the process leads us to really the next uh, issue, the next theme that comes out here, which is the uh, fourth doctrinal theme, is that honorable leaders are developed and not born. And we're all, the plan that God has for every church-age believer is to make us leaders. Not only, well, maybe, maybe here it's just a leader in your home, a leader in your family, leader in your marriage, leader at work, uh, whatever the field of leadership that may be, but the future plan is to make us, so that prepare us so that we can rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. So there's a training plan. And that's part of the plan. The focus is on the process, not just getting to the result uh, right away. And we'll come back next time. I have a couple more things to say there, but we're out of time. So we'll come back and finish up with that next time as we get into God's training program for Joseph. And that's what we're going to see in the next two or three chapters. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be encouraged by the way you work in our lives the way you handle situations, provide for us, take care of us, and protect us, and the way you work in our lives to work all things together for good in preparing us for our future uh, ruling and reigning responsibilities. Pray that we would remember the things we studied tonight, that we might not forget the challenge to keep pressing on towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.